Ah, the sounds of a fire. And bugs. And nature. <laughs> I'm sorry, yes. Nature. Because we are out in nature right now. Enjoying it. You can also hear the AC unit. The, yes. <laughs> That's what that is. I couldn't think of a lie. <laughs> <laughs> nope. <laughs> but we're here out in the world doing a remote. Yep, we are in the world. We are not in the same walls that I've been in since January of 2020. <laughs> because today is our anniversary and we are celebrating by being in the woods. It's not the woods. <laughs> Stop lying. There's like seven trees here. <laughs> they are filled with birds. They've yeah. all tucked in for the night, but it was really cool watching them play uh, play tag and figure out which trees were home for the night. And we got ourselves a nice roaring fire for the episode of, you know, fire. Yep. Thought that was a nice touch. It looks good. It really, really caught on. It's starting to die down now. We need to stoke it back up so we can make our s'mores. Yes. So I guess we should just get into the episode. I guess so. We're going to go have s'mores. Bye, guys. Bye. Greetings, listeners, domestic, international, and extraterrestrial. I'm Dave Reed. And I'm Kristen Riley. And this is The Cast Files. I am a nerd who somehow never saw The X-Files when it was on. And I watched it when it originally aired. The Cast Files is a podcast where we are watching and discussing every episode of The X-Files, spoiler-free. Today, we are watching Season 1, Episode 12, Fire! It originally aired December 17th, 1993 to a viewership of 11.1 million people. It was written by Chris Carter, directed by Larry Shaw. Oh, this one was also written by Chris Carter. It was. Okay. Guess I wasn't looking at the screen either time. No, he did a much better job on this one than the last one he I wrote. Agree. Yeah, I agree. How did you feel about this episode? It was not bad. Yep. <laughs> I guess now is a good time to tell everybody that, eh, so far, eh. <laughs> But my favorite TV show of all time is Buffy the Vampire Slayer, so rough season ones, I understand. You ready to get into it? Sure. All right. So IMDb and Hulu says Mulder and Scully join forces with an inspector from Scotland Yard when a man with pyrokinetic powers stalks members of the British aristocracy. Good summary. Do they join forces? Yeah, they work together. Mulder wants to join forces. <laughs> no. <laughs> this one opens in Bosham, England, 70 miles southwest of London. Bosham, England? It's spelled like that, but since it's British, it's probably like Bottingham. <laughs> Bottingham. An older man leaves his house, kisses his wife goodbye, says hi to his gardeners. The obvious killer lights the homeowner <laughs> on fire. Top of the morning to ya. And we are at opening credits. <laughs> The, the obvious killer that thinks he's uh, the Lucky Charms leprechaun. So I don't mention every single time throughout this when he changes his accent, but he does in a lot of different scenes. <laughs> yeah. And there's the one way at the end in the hallway where I think he's also forgotten which accent he's doing. 
I don't remember what he says, what his line is. Time to call 911. I think it was that. And it was kind of like, are you Irish, Scottish, British? Where are you from? The actor, even with his fake goatee in the opening scene, I recognize immediately because he did a couple episodes of Firefly, another one of my favorite shows, and Dollhouse, not one of my favorite <laughs> shows. <laughs> We have had some interesting conversations rewatching Dollhouse, though. Uh huh. Well, this is my first time watching Dollhouse. Okay, too. so me rewatching Dollhouse. <laughs> it's a similar situation to this yes. podcast. <laughs> Only we're not doing a podcast about that. <laughs> Less editing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right, when we return, we're in Washington, D.C. Scully is exhausted from a day in court. They're in some parking garage. Mulder quips, that's one of the luxuries of hunting down aliens and genetic mutants. You rarely get to press charges. Yeah, so did they have an actual case off screen? They must have. Wow. I, my mind was spinning trying to figure out what happened in the last episode that would have put them in court, but nothing. Yeah. So, yeah, I guess so. Scully and Mulder head to Mulder's car. The car is unlocked. Mulder says he knows it was locked, but there's a cassette tape on his dash. Mulder says, 10 to 1, you can't dance to it. Ah, oh, he finally learned how odds work. <laughs> That's right. What? Was that Jersey Devil? <laughs> that was Jersey Devil. <laughs> I was pretty happy for him. Yeah, it was pretty good. So he plays the cassette, and here's what it says. Greetings, Agent Mulder. Whoop, do the voice. I can't. Aw, try. You do it. Uh, No, I want you to try. I don't want to try. (sighs) And now for Cast Files Theater. Greetings, Agent Mulder. Six months ago, British Minister of Parliament Reggie Ellicott received an audio cassette much like the one you are listening to now. Mulder recognizes the voice and starts looking around. Unfortunately for Mr. Ellicott, when he popped the tape into the car stereo, he armed a device which, when he tried to exit the car, created an explosion that was heard five miles away. Shouldn't that be kilometers? Yes. Mm-hmm. The Scotland Yard forensic team could only identify the poor bastard by his dental records. If only he hadn't reached for the door handle and triggered the detonator. But then, how was he to know? He was sitting on enough plastic explosive to lift the car 40 feet in the air and deposit the engine block on top of a three-story building. That was Cast Files Theater. First of all, what was he supposed to do? Just sit in his car for the, for, well, I was going to say for the rest of his life, but he did. (laughs) (laughs) Whoops. uh, No, but he could have done the Danny Glover and just sit there for as long as it takes for somebody to come help. (laughs) I guess so. The door opens and they both jump. Scully gasps. She asks Mulder, oh, um, it's somebody that we haven't met yet. We're about to find out. It turns out to be Phoebe Green. She asks Mulder if he's going to thank her. Mulder says, for what? For saving your life. One tends not to make the same mistake twice. Mulder says he'll try to remember that. It turns out she's an old flame of Mulder's from Oxford. She kisses him as Scully tries not to look, and Mulder introduces her. Mulder says, Dana Scully, this is Phoebe. Phoebe? Terror of Scotland Yard. So it's great. And here we have our first trivia. Oh, yay. So the character Phoebe Green was originally intended to be a recurring role because Chris Carter admired actress Amanda Pays and he liked working Sherlock Holmes references into the script, which I didn't include in this at all. (laughs) I didn't add them ever, except for this trivia bit. But the fan reaction to this rival to Scully proved so strong that this idea was swiftly dropped. 
Wow. <laughs> Fans hated that there was another woman in the show? Who was smoothing on Mulder. Yeah, I, I don't like that. Well, fans are being gross. Well. Because I liked her. There's there's always a block of fans who are going to be gross. Yeah. Not all fans. Oh, I did a not all fans. <laughs> Hashtag not all gross. fans. Yeah, I think it could have been an interesting dynamic if they had brought her back. Um, but apparently, fans said no. Guess we're not going to see her again. Nope. We're in the X-Files office at FBI headquarters. Phoebe is telling Mulder about the guy who burned up. Scully is also there, but Phoebe is not talking to Scully. <laughs> Phoebe says, some clever bloke has been giving the aristocracy a good scare. Killed off a ranking member of parliament, or three, for good measure. Set Windsor Castle ablaze in 92. Which at first I was like, wow, that was a long time ago. (laughs) (laughs) And then I realized, oh, she's talking in 1993. So that was last year. That's not the only time I went, what? Not remembering that we were in 1993. Apparently this guy is different than some car bombing guy that they're also looking after because he likes to burn his victims alive and they can't figure out how he's doing it. There's not a crumb of evidence. Oh, and he's also a creep who likes to send the newly widowed love letters. I couldn't tell if it was before or after they were widowed. You know, I'm not actually sure either. I just assumed it was after, but... I did the first time around, and then the second time around, I didn't. So, no, it has to be before, because the current couple that we're talking about in this episode got one. Oh, did they? Yeah. Okay, never mind. So, the soon-to-be-widowed. Right, still a creep. Yes. As Phoebe leaves the office, she says, oh, bye, to Scully, and Scully finger waves, and it's the gift that all filers know. (laughs) (laughs) There's also a Mulder backstory now about his relationship with Phoebe way back in the day. At the end of this scene, he says, I was merely extending a professional courtesy. And Scully says, oh, is that what you were extending? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Scully's interested in some extending. Now we're in the arson labs at the FBI headquarters. It's a full scene about how there's no evidence. And a dude writing a poem to fire. Yes. Oh, he was caressing those images of fire. It's so beautiful. Primarily, Phoebe is talking to the arson guy. Uh, Mulder makes some noises but contributes nothing in this scene, and Scully listens from the door. <laughs> Next scene, we're in Cape Cod, Massachusetts. Cecil Lively is, he's the guy at the beginning, we know his name, who said top of the morning to you and lit the other guy on fire. Cecil Lively is dressed as a handyman. He's painting the walls with argotypoline, a kind of rocket fuel. Does it say that on the can? I know it says argotypoline on the can. Really? Oh man, I missed that. And then he takes the, he takes it off, the label off when he's walking down the stairs. Because in the next scene when he introduces himself to the Marsdens, he's carrying the paint bucket, but it has the label pulled off. Upstairs he had the label on it. Oh man, I totally missed it. Upstairs. Yeah, I thought it was just paint. Nope. Wow, okay. So I said, wouldn't the house smell like fuel fumes? One would think. Because when you paint a house, if you paint a wall in a house, the house smells like paint for a while. Yeah. Even if you're airing things out. So I feel like if you're painting jet fuel or rocket fuel on a wall, it would probably smell like something. Yeah, I'm not, I still am not sure why they had to have the accelerant at all. Because you're creating a person who is pyrokinetic. Right. Why are you creating a pyrokinetic who has to have an accelerant? Yeah, we were discussing this and I guess it's to make sure that the fire burns extra hot and extra fast. But it does seem like, if you're already using magic, just keep using magic. Yeah. My my pyrokinetic guy, his fires burn super hot. Seems, re- seems <laughs> okay. reasonable to me. Well, I was also thinking about fumes 
because he's painting the wall and there's got to be some sort of off-gassing fumes. Don't stand, don't light a cigarette 20 feet from this yeah. thing. And he lights a cigarette in that room Yeah. while he's looking out the window. The whole use of accelerant doesn't make any sense to no. me in this episode. We'll move on. So we don't know why he's not catching everything on fire immediately, but whatever. He looks through the window and sees a town car drive up, followed by a rental truck. The door opens and a dog runs out, followed by two boys who we later learn are Jimmy and Michael. He introduces himself, lively introduces himself to the new owners, the Marsdens, saying he's the caretaker. And they were sending letters. And this is the other time where I was like, letters? Why were they sending? You mean emails? No, not in 1993. You you didn't mean emails. I'm Bob, the caretaker. Yeah. Oh, yeah, this is another accent. Um, Then we are outside and the dog is in the yard uncovering what's obviously a body. Lively kicks the dog, which is unnecessary because we already do not like him. And he also killed the the caretaker. The other Bob. The other Bob caretaker. (laughs) I feel like there was no need to kick the dog. You have your person kick the dog if they're pretending to be a good person and the audience doesn't know that they're also they're already a bad person. But we already know he's a bad person. Pretty much. Yeah. Don't kick the dog. Here's another bit of trivia. Lively's target was named for the show's hairstylist. (laughs) Nice. (laughs) Now we're back in the X-Files office in FBI headquarters. Mulder tells Scully she's off the hook. We aren't going to see these two on this case, or at least for a while, because Mulder is going to go with Phoebe instead. Mulder is once again running off without his partner. Yes. Before he runs off, he tells Scully that he's afraid of fire, and Phoebe knows this, so she's just playing with him. He tells a story about his childhood friend whose house burned down and the kid had to spend the night in the rubble to keep looters away, which seems like a wild thing. The parents apparently didn't care. Right? <laughs> and what are you going to loot from a burned down That's what I keep pile thinking. of ashes? If your house burned down, the way that he said it, it sounds like the entire house burned down. Not like the Florida room of the house burned down and the rest of the house was fine, but it was open so people could come inside and steal stuff. It sounds like the entire house burned down into ashes and rubble. And then a seven-year-old boy slept in those ashes to keep <laughs> grown-ass men from... Stealing any remnants of personal effects. People were weird in the 70s. Uh, Also, that scene was not mentioned in Agents of Chaos, which I would like to say. So So it's not canon. Is it canon or is it it not canon? (laughs) Only Agents of Chaos is canon for Mulder's backstory. (laughs) Not him saying his backstory in the TV show. Exactly. He also says it took him 10 years to forget about this woman. And he's walking right into her obvious mind games. Why? Uh, Because he's forgotten about her. (laughs) He just said it. Yeah, you answered the question in the sentence. (laughs) But later he says he has photographic memory. Hey, look, don't ask questions you're not ready to have the answers to. All right. Then moving on. (laughs) Cape Cod, Massachusetts. Lively is creeping on Mrs. Marsden, who's wearing a dress that my mother had in the early 90s, too. (laughs) Nothing else happens in that scene. He hears someone coughing and goes around the side of the house and finds the Marsden's driver. He bums a smoke from the driver and walks to town. He offers to get the driver some cough syrup in the end. We're at Hennessy's Bar in Cape Cod, which is where he went, Lively went after getting the cough syrup because he's got the bottle in a brown bag he's getting hit on at the bar he shows off by lighting his finger on fire and then his whole arm and then the entire bar he is for some reason just not trying to lay low at all no it's very strange i'm 
I'm here on a mission to kill this British rich guy and I'm gonna burn out a bar just because I feel like it. Right. I said he's never going to get a date this way. Maybe Alistair Crowley can introduce him to some sex magic. Give him a chance. Hey! <laughs> <laughs> I called back to your story. You I know. should have been excited. I did. I yeah. said hey. <laughs> You're making fun. <laughs> I'm not making fun. Yes you are. I'm having fun. So there's a woman in this scene who, the woman who's hitting on him has a bandage on her thumb and the rest of her nails are either press-on or acrylic nails. They're bright red. This is all just stuff that I noticed. (laughs) I just noticed the bandage. I didn't notice the other nails. So here's what I think happened. Okay. I bet that the thumbnail fell off if it was press-on or broke if it was acrylic and they didn't have the time or the desire to fix it, one or the other or both, because it was only a two-minute scene. So while filming or in between, like leading up to filming, she broke that nail and they were like, well, oh well. (laughs) Here we go. (laughs) You only need these nails for this scene. So the next scene that we're at is Boston Mercy Hospital. Mulder and Phoebe are walking into the waiting room to speak with the woman from the bar whose nail I just dissected. Before they enter her room, Mulder tells Phoebe, the bar's across the street from the fire station. It burned to the ground before they had a chance to even respond. The fire marshal said it burned so hot, it turned the concrete foundation into sponge cake. This was a woman who was in the bar. <laughs> Just lots of stuff there. Yeah. I... What were they doing? They were it, they couldn't respond fast enough. I guess we're supposed to not think that they're watching their shows. I guess. And instead... That's just how fast it burned, apparently. It burned super fast. Fine, it burned that fast. But can fire turn foundation to sponge cake? Sponge cake is a weird... uh, Obviously not actually sponge cake. (laughs) Sponge cake is a weird analogy or metaphor, but, like, I know the heat in, like, Portland and stuff is is messing up their asphalt real bad. Yeah? So it can definitely do something. Asphalt and concrete are different, though. Well, I think it's concrete. Hmm. I just said asphalt. Or roads. It's messing up their roads real bad. I was just curious and not curious enough to look it up. I was afraid of what I would find if I was like, jet fuel and fire and burning hot. (laughs) Jet fuel can't burn hot enough to melt steel beams. Yeah, I was... (laughs) I was avoiding that for myself, so I didn't look it up. <laughs> the woman from the bar doesn't want to talk because the person she lives with thinks she was at school. Obviously, she wasn't at school. She was at the bar. Mulder tells the woman that's no problem. They'll be discreet. Mulder and Phoebe leave the room for exposition. Apparently, Phoebe cheated on Mulder way back when. Mulder is cursed with a photographic memory. Me too, but only about who cheated on me way back when and when they come to ask me for favors. <laughs> Apparently, the two of them also had sex on Sir Arthur Cannon Doyle's tombstone, but... But ha, they didn't because Phoebe Green mentions having a certain youthful indiscretion atop Sir Arthur Cannon Doyle's tombstone on a misty night in Windlesham and his tomb. He was buried in Windlesham, but it was reburied in Minstead in 1955. Oh. So they just boned down on some dude. <laughs> yep. <laughs> it was Doyle Arthurson. <laughs> yep. <laughs> now back in the women's hospital room, she agrees to help and recalls that the guy has an English accent. Cape Cod, the driver comes out of the bathroom looking like the walking plague. <laughs> He's sweaty, he's coughing, he should be laying down. Lively makes a comment about the cough syrup, which he's obviously tampered with to get the driver out of the way, and it works. Good job. Back at FBI headquarters, this is this episode bounced so much that I'm trying to get through a lot of this, and it took a long time for me to 
clarify my notes after we watched it. But now we're in FBI headquarters. Scully's writing her exposition field report. So I've decided to call it that from now on. So in her field report, this is what she says. After reviewing the files of the Scotland Yard arson murders, two points remain unexplained. One is the use of an untraceable accelerant. The other involves the victims. Since they all burned in the presence of family members in safe surroundings, this indicates unusually intimate access to the victims by the arsonist. The arsonist is most likely a male, less than 25 years of age. He will often act out of impulse, satisfying sexual urges or insecurities with destructive behavior, which compensates for his social inadequacies or maladjustment. Now they keep doing this. Mulder is the profiler, but they keep having Scully profile all these people, and I can't stand it because they've established Mulder is the profiler, and I feel like they're regressing and having Scully do the profiling because of some weird misogynistic trope of how women are more empathetic. Oh, really? Is that how you're reading this? That's how it, that's how it feels to me because mm. she's not supposed to be the profiler. She's the medical doctor. He's the psychologist. He has a reputation of being an amazing profiler. That's true. He's done one profile in 12 episodes. And it got stolen. And it got stolen. Yeah. Oh, you're right. He has. I just looked at this. I, I like your read on it because that makes a lot of sense, especially cutting all those clips and mm -hmm. re reminding us of that Mulder is or used to be a fantastic profiler. Scully should be doing the reports of what she's finding in the X-Files because as far as we know, she's still kind of spying on Mulder. Yeah. But you're right. The pro She keeps doing the profiles. Hmm. It makes it also makes Mulder look like he's not doing any work at all. Yeah, it really does. So let's see. I don't like that this report here juxtaposes with the next scene when she says he's satisfying sexual urges or insecurities and it goes directly into him talking to the little boys. Oh, yeah. I didn't like it because it fades together. Timing, editing, how they needed to move from one scene to another. I'm sure it was just kind of Yeah, because they there. didn't they haven't alluded to him being a pedophile. Or no. They haven't. And they also haven't, besides him looking through that window, that's the only time he's been outwardly gross sexually. It feels a little tacked on. It does. There's another scene near the end that also feels a little tacked on. Okay. That I'll mention later. Okay. That's Scully doing the profiling and, and the field report. And then we go to, now we're in Cape Cod again. We're outside the house where the Marsdens are staying. Lively is coating the swings with Argotypoline, which is the rocket fuel, as Jimmy and Michael run around the yard laughing. When I, I first saw what he was doing, I was like, that is some real weak stain. <laughs> you did. You said that out loud. I've stained things and I've painted things and it was just the weakest I've ever seen. <laughs> then I realized what he was doing. Good prop, actually. Yeah. Because if you're not paying attention, he has diluted it into the paint or the white stain. And so it looks like he's doing a thing. Jimmy and Michael are running around the big yard laughing. They're having a great time. Lively asks the boys if they want to see a magic trick. Of course they do. Then Lively tells them not to tell their mom and dad, solidifying him as a grade A creep. Yeah. He goes through this whole full minute of telling the boys not to tell anything. The boys agree and Lively shows them some magic tricks with a cigarette. 
Fine. We are back in the arson lab at FBI headquarters. Scully goes to see Agent Beatty, which is the guy who was writing poems to fire earlier, but I didn't catch his name the first time. The He's the arson specialist Mulder and Phoebe were talking to. Here we learn about rocket fuel as an accelerant. Agent Beatty says that even the tiniest amounts of this stuff can produce temperatures of over 5,000 degrees. That can turn sand into glass. Yes! Yay! <laughs> Call back back in cape cod they're still doing the magic tricks with cigarettes he's still being a creep and trying to coax the boys to smoke which is just weird very weird i think what they were doing here is in the arson lab they were talking about using the uh the fuel as accelerant and putting it into a hand cream and then it goes to him trying to get the boys to touch it as if maybe the boys had used lotion or soap or something that had jet fuel on it okay but he's not going to burn the kids no that's not his mo no not at all his mo is going after the men this whole seems weird it really does so before one of the boys can take the cigarette mrs marsden calls the boys away and then asks lively if he'll be able to drive them to an event that evening because their driver is ill and he agrees and i was thinking they can't even drive themselves anywhere I was thinking the same exact thing, but (sighs) I'll cut them a little slack because they're British and they drive on the wrong side of the road with the steering wheel on the wrong side of the car. Uh, Yeah. I can see that'd be like, ah, you know what? I don't want to bother with that. You know what? I didn't think about that. You're right. I'm fine with that. Although (laughs) their driver would have to be equipped to do whatever. Yeah, but he's a professional driver. Okay. I am not. I don't. I am. Yes. I can tell you. (laughs) That's, That's why I stopped there. You know what? A professional driver would know. (laughs) You know how uh, pilots in movies can fly any kind of plane or helicopter or anything if they've even if they've never been in that particular helicopter or plane? Uh, Yes, in movies, but not in real life. In real life, it's the same with uh, drivers. Hmm. I could drive anything. Get in, just get in and drive it perfectly. Nope. Even though I've never driven clutch before in my life, I could do it. We're at FBI headquarters. Scully is doing some more exposition. The arsonist is usually unmarried and prone to excessive fantasies about women or men who are inaccessible to him. Often the setting of fires results from his cowardice and inability to develop a natural relationship. I'm glad that they're telling us all of this because... Saves them on character development. (laughs) His crimes are often very clever and elaborately planned. The suspicious nature of the fire last night strongly suggests the arsonist has followed Lord Marsden to the United States. A check of all recent immigrations in the northeastern area is underway. It has become not a matter of if, but when he will strike. At least someone's doing a job. Mulder and Phoebe have paired up to do this job. And they're not doing it? And the only person doing any work <laughs> is Scully. Well, yeah. And here we go. Do you, you be Mulder. So we're in Boston now, and Mulder and Phoebe are walking down the street. And now for Cast Files Theater. Remember those reports I told you about? About people who could control and conduct fire? Pyrokinetic? Faintly. I think this guy just sent us a message that he's far more exotic. I'd say so. I mean, he can set himself afire. Ha 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 ha. What? No, that's me. Oh. <laughs> what? I'm just not used to someone so quick to agree with me. That was Cast Files Theater. That's how I would have played it. They discuss protecting the family, but decide to set a trap they're going to be too horny to pay attention to. Good plan. (laughs) Go home, Phoebe. 
Bring back Scully as Mulder's partner. Horny police. <laughs> so now we're at the Venable Plaza Hotel. It's 5.16 p.m. Mulder and Phoebe have rooms at this hotel. Fortunately for everyone, they're separate rooms. <laughs> Not fortunately for Mulder and Phoebe. <laughs> Phoebe's fine. <laughs> Scully calls Mulder and accidentally ruins his sex plans by wanting to solve a case. <laughs> what a jerk. <laughs> she asks if she can come up and show him something. He says no. He's anticipating having his hands full. Yeah, full of what, Mulder? <laughs> Scully basically rolls eyes at this. <laughs> at 6.47 p.m., the Marsdens are dropped off at the hotel for the event. They're dropped off by Lively, who's driving. Phoebe is riding with the family too. Later, Mulder is in a room alone and Phoebe comes in. They're dancing as Scully shows up. I just kind of fast forwarded through this bit. Yeah, you did. Because they're talking about how we're not anticipating the arsonist showing up at this. Yes, while standing <laughs> in a room by themselves. Yeah, that's because the only fire in that room oh, God. is in her loins. I think it's in his loins. Oh yeah, because she's totally not into this. I think she's putting it on. I don't think it really... It's not Mulder. She just wants something from him. This is an easy way for her to get... What? Him to not work on this case? Hmm, that's a good point. Nobody's working on this case. That's Except supposed, Scully. That's supposed to be working on this case. Yeah. <sighs> I don't know. Unless she's on Lively's side here. Maybe. <laughs> she's not doing any actual work either. I don't know, man. And she drops Mulder here in a minute. <laughs> so they're dancing. Phoebe and Mulder are dancing as Scully shows up. Scully turns around and sees Lively looking like a creep. When she turns back around, this whole scene, Scully is just basically spinning in a circle. <laughs> so she walks up, sees them dancing, spins around, Looks at Lively, making the face like, ooh, look at this creep. Spins around, looks back at Mulder and Phoebe, who are now kissing. And she's like, oh, I guess I shouldn't be watching this. Spins back around, and <laughs> Lively's gone. So then she keeps turning, and that's when she sees that there is a fire on the 14th floor. Trivia break. This episode features Mulder's first on-screen kiss. Really? Yep. Ah, like Mulder's or Duchovny's? It said Mulder's. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Scully breaks up the makeout sesh and Phoebe says, that's where the children are. <laughs> it, well, she, it is. It is. And when she said that's where the children are, I imagined a whole floor full of children, like everybody at the party. <laughs> all the of, daycare. All of, yes, all of the adults of the party brought their children, but the children went to the 14th floor and they've got a couple of babysitters and all of the kids. That's not what this is. No. <laughs> it's it's just, just that rich British couple had the entire 14th floor. Yeah. I mean, fine. Mulder runs up the stairs. He touches the door to feel for heat, which is really good fire safety protocol that we learned in school. Yeah. <laughs> and he is out of breath and sweating from a combo of running up 14 flights, making out with his ex, and his phobia of fire. Just looking real pale. He ends up on the floor. Once he goes through the door, he's in shock. He's unable to do much of anything. No, he's just run up 14 floors. He's just tired. <laughs> Okay. He just ran up there and went, ooh, I gotta take a break. <laughs> While the floor's on fire. <laughs> the firefighters get there and carry out the kids, and then they come back and rescue Mulder. Downstairs, Lively comes out of the elevator with the Marsden kids. How? Lively is the one who rescued them. We see one of the fire... I thought we saw the firefighter no, see, carry the kids. You see Lively carrying the kids. Oh, 
I I didn't see anybody carrying the kids. I just saw somebody <laughs> carrying yeah. the kids. Okay, that makes sense. Great use of the elevator, not fire safety protocol. Yeah. But the firefighters carry Mulder downstairs and give him oxygen. It's a real good thing that the whole 14th floor was just the kids and, and Lively because that was a massive fire. Yeah. Scully checks on Mulder, who is now... <laughs> Who was just deposited on the floor with an oxygen <laughs> tank. I'm sure, whatever, it's just what needed to happen in the scene. It just seems weird that you would bring somebody down who has smoke inhalation problems. What? No, it's just because he's tired from running up all the stairs. <laughs> the firefighter's like, he's fine, give him oxygen. <laughs> Put him here, we'll collect the tank later. Well, whatever. Um, Scully goes over to him and is checking on Mulder. We see Scully look up at Phoebe, who's congratulating Lively for saving the kids and doesn't even glance in Mulder's direction. <laughs> yep. Which is why I was arguing with you about whose loins were on fire in the previous scene, because in this scene, Phoebe has forgotten about Mulder completely. Yeah, because her sex plans were just interrupted. When Mulder wakes up, he's shirtless and coughing. Scully is watching over him. She gives him water. He asks about Phoebe first and then about the kids. Yeah, you you kept looking down at, to take notes for this, but when she hands him the glass, he makes tiny kissy faces at the glass before he gets his lips to it. <laughs> oh, Mulder and his kissy faces. Mulder gets out of bed and he's irritated at himself and embarrassed. That makes sense. He's having a pretty typical reaction, I think. Yeah, he says he haired. You didn't. That's running. You you didn't run. You collapsed. <laughs> yeah, I'm not making any fun of him at this. He has a phobia. He tried to overcome it. It didn't work. Fortunately, everybody was okay. What, what are you going to do? I'm on Scully's side here. Look, it could have happened to anyone. And that's when he says, yeah, but it happened to me. It's like, well, yeah, that's why <laughs> you are personally mad <laughs> at yourself. Phoebe comes in while Mulder is in the bathroom and Scully is talking to him from the main room. Scully asks what they know about this lively guy, but calls him the driver. Or no, the, calls him the guy who saved the kids, I think. And Phoebe says she had him checked out, not knowing that she checked out the caretaker and not lively. Just not a picture. Right. I guess she did uh, work before she arrived. You know what? Actually, she's doing a lot of work while she's here, just not on this case. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Priorities, man. Phoebe says she'll call Mulder later and leaves. So much for their tryst. Oh. Mulder's pretty sad. Another episode where Mulder is sad. Yeah. Scully asks Mulder if he's at all interested in knowing what she came up to tell him. He basically says, fine. <laughs> <laughs> he says some other stuff, but it's basically fine. Scully says rich folk don't even tie their own shoes. She ran a search through Interpol of all gardeners, manservants, and domestic help hired by the murder victims at the time of their death. Only one repeat, Cecil Lively. Apparently he was questioned by Scotland Yard and they released him, but I dug a little further. Cecil Lively is a documented citizen of Great Britain, paid his taxes, never been on the dole, a model citizen until he died in 1971 in a London tenement fire. So I checked a little further. Cecil Lively spelled L apostrophe, came up again. In fact, it came up twice. First, on a list of death certificates listed among, listen up, a group of children who died in a ritual sacrifice by a satanic cult in 1963 in the Tottingham Woods outside Bath, England. That also seems a little tacked on. It's just ridiculous. Satanic cults, yeah. just because you have to add something else? In the, in the middle of an episode that's got nothing to do with that. 
Don't do that. Mulder asks, where else did you find him? And Scully says, you're going to love this. On a list of recent visas issued by the British government, Cecil Lively's passport was stamped by U.S. immigration officials two weeks ago at the port of entry in Boston. Mulder runs off to save Phoebe, and Scully waits for a composite sketch of the arsonist, which is Lively. She calls Mulder, but can't get through. Now we're at Cape Cod. Lively is there. He sees Mulder get out of a car from an upstairs window. Like he was creeping on the Marsdens when he first arrived. He keeps looking out windows. Yeah, he's just staring out that window whenever he's not staring. In a window? In a window. (laughs) (laughs) Or trying to get children to smoke. Right. In windows, out of windows, children smoking. (sighs) Well, Mulder bursts in and finds Phoebe and Mr. Marsden embracing, which is, you know, obviously it's tacky, but it's also Bob is there. Yeah. They know he's there. And this is the, this is the other thing that I said feels tacked on. That she's just That she's having the affair with the married man. And it's such a quick thing. It's not a part of the story before or after. It just makes no sense. No. They just threw it in there to make us apparently not like Phoebe more, I guess. I guess because at the very end, skipping ahead a bit, when she leaves, we're supposed to be like, oh yeah, it's because she's having an affair with this other guy. But no, she could have just left. That is also, that's her MO. Yeah. She doesn't call. Also, she works in England. Right. So she has a reason to leave. Yeah. And this wasn't ever going to be a long-term thing. So, okay, bye. Yeah. There's too many things in this episode that feel like, oh, we need some more runtime. Do you think it's that? Or do you think Chris Carter wrote this and then the editors were too concerned to edit out some of his ideas? Hmm. I don't know. I don't know either. I'm not actually saying anything negative about Chris Carter because I don't know. But because he's the producer, the main the main dude on this show, and he wrote this one and the other one, I'm wondering if, and I'm assuming that in a lot of scripts, you'll put a ton of stuff in. Yeah. And then it gets kind of weeded out as you're like, ah, oh, this, this feels a little tacked on. Let's use that for another episode because we can definitely do a satanic cult killing children in another thing. Yeah. <laughs> but <sighs> I don't know. So Phoebe goes outside to get the mother and the two kids. And while she's bringing them back, Scully arrives and asks Mulder if he's okay. Which obviously he's not because his whole heart is broken again. They tell the Marsdens it's their driver, but they disagree, which I thought was nice of them and good of them to immediately say, no, it can't be. He's worked with us for over 10 years. This doesn't make any sense. So good job sticking up for your manservant. (laughs) And then Scully shows the composite sketch and surprise, it's the caretaker who is currently upstairs with the kids. Mulder and Scully find the driver. He's burnt to a crisp over the toilet. Nothing around him has any cinch marks on it. That's another one that was like, okay, did you put the rocket fuel in the... That's what I was assuming. Cough syrup? You would think that would do something... Just kill him? Yeah, just poison you not set you on fire from the outside good premise some of the things are just not executed very well yeah i originally thought that he was obviously tampering with the cough syrup so i just assumed because he's been diluting the rocket fuel in everything he was probably doing it there but the guy was definitely burnt from the outside in not the inside out yeah and not at five thousand degrees (laughs) no so i have questions not necessarily notes because i don't know how i would do this but questions so it's obviously not him the marsdens go outside (laughs) and before they go outside they say but what about the kids (laughs) The least concerned parents I've ever seen when there's a 
murderer who's targeting your family upstairs with your children. Well, it's British aristocracy. They're probably cousins. And their parents were probably cousins. So they're not very bright. Yeah. What about the children? What about them? Are they in danger? <laughs> oh, they are in danger. Oh, someone should do something. <laughs> you, the American. Could you see about the children, please? No one's concerned about the dog either. The dog's upstairs. Dog too. hasn't been seen since. The dog's in the room because it's barking through the door. Okay. The dog is barking for Mulder before the boys make any sounds. <laughs> well, that's because their parents and grandparents were all cousins. <laughs> so they're like, "Are we in danger?" <laughs> they're in there smoking cigarettes. See, it does seem pretty hot in here. <laughs> Should we do something about it? <laughs> no, the American will come get us. And he does. Mulder goes upstairs to find the boys. Why did neither Phoebe nor Scully go up? It doesn't make any sense. We already know that Mulder has been traumatized by fire tonight. Yeah. <laughs> I guess it was last night. But in this 24-hour period... <laughs> And he's going upstairs where a guy who lights himself on fire is hanging out with some kids. <laughs> Neith, I, I don't know where Phoebe goes. I guess she goes outside with the Marsden adults <laughs> because she's not. Oh, I, we, she comes in. So she, whatever. She disappears at some point. Oh, yeah. She's just setting a trap. Right. And Scully's downstairs, but came in the front door. So everybody, <laughs> Scully and Phoebe made sure the two adults got out the front door that they were standing in front of while Mulder ran upstairs to get the fire guy. Lively sets the walls on fire, trapping Mulder in his own personal hell. The kids are locked in a room. Lively walks downstairs. Scully points her gun at him. He says she won't shoot him because one spark could cause the whole house to burn. Which is ridiculous because the house is already on fire. Does he mean as an explosion because of all the vapors from the rocket fuel that should be explosive but never were before? Yes, and aren't currently because... The house is on fire? <laughs> because the fire started in the bedroom and the curtains and that's when the, everybody ran downstairs and then all of the pictures caught on fire, but not the walls. Mm -hmm. Ugh, just and then a he lot. Swats at it with a towel. Yeah, it was just a lot. Also, I would have shot him. So there you go. <laughs> I said, but but why would the whole house burn with one spark if if it's the whole upstairs is already on fire? What would one more spark do? But Phoebe comes around the corner and throws jet fuel on Lively, and he runs out of the house, and he's spinning and spinning and spinning and spinning as he goes out of the house. Eventually, everyone makes it outside to watch Lively light himself on fire while he's yelling, You can't fight fire with fire! It's really weird. And spinning and spinning and spinning and spinning and spinning. Now we're at the X-Files office at FBI headquarters. Mulder is at his desk. Behind him, a woman with an English accent says, Care to take me to lunch? Wait, do it in a voice. You do it in a voice. No, you do it in a voice. And everyone who loves Gillian Anderson swoons. Mulder passes, about passes out. <laughs> <laughs> so here's trivia for people who don't know and love Gillian Anderson. Scully speaks briefly in a British accent in order to joke with Mulder. Gillian Anderson grew up in London and is known for speaking equally well in an American or British accent, depending on where she is or where her interlocutor is from. Huh. So she code switches depending on who she's talking to. Weird. Yeah. Phoebe is gone. She left without calling. Shock. She did send him a mixtape through the overnight mail, which was a nice touch, I thought. Scully asks if he's going to listen to it. Mulder says, no, 10 to 1, you can't dance to it. Ha ha ha. But we don't see him throw the tape away. I bet he listens to it later <laughs> that night. Now we're at Boston Mercy Hospital. 
Scully is filing her exposition report. Turns out the guy who can light himself on fire didn't die uh, when he lit himself on fire. He did have fifth and sixth degree burns since it wasn't a regular fire, but because of jet fuel, I guess. And I said JBL callback. <laughs> <laughs> I guess it was rocket fuel, but close enough. And we've also heard her saying that his mitochondrial cells were fixing themselves. Yeah, he's healing. Whatever, he's healing and he's going to be fully healed within a month. Trivia, because we all had questions about fifth and sixth degree burns in this household. They are actual classifications, but descriptions of burns beyond third degree are not usually taught in health classes since the prognosis is almost certainly fatal. That makes sense. So you wouldn't learn in first aid if the person's just going to die. Dying, yeah. Lively ended up in a hyperbaric chamber where he'll recover and wait until he can be tried for the murder of the Massachusetts caretaker. Just that one guy. <laughs> Not setting any of the fires. And they forgot to mention the driver. He oh, also yeah, I definitely killed the driver. A nurse asks if she can get him anything, and I don't understand how hyperbaric chambers work. How can she get him anything? <laughs> don't I don't know either. So I don't know. And this episode ends on a quip. I'm just dying for a cigarette. And then he licks his really crusty lips. The end. All right. That was a lot, but we did it. Not a lot to say about this episode, so who are you shipping? I'm going to ship Lively with that uh, that first wife at the very opening. Uh, the one who was like 40 years younger than her husband? Yep. Yeah. I am going to ship Phoebe Green and anyone she wants. I know. I read your note when you were in the bathroom. Ah. <laughs> I really liked it. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I was like, how do we keep this from continuing? He just gets the girl one of these ridiculous situations that he's trying to get the girl in <laughs> how are you going to survive all right i have two you can pick the one you like the best okay my first one is anytime somebody creepily stares at you from the shadows behind a big old potted plant in a hallway you shoot them immediately okay or since he's just killing like british aristocracy let him keep doing it but he's not just killing british aristocracy i i am on your side there but he's also killed the driver and he he was caretaker. only committing or killing. Well, no, because he did the caretaker. I was going to say the driver might be a byproduct of Scotland Yard getting involved. Ah. Uh, but no, the caretaker, he did get the caretaker. So you're right. So I guess shoot him in the hallway. Yep. I would have shot him on the stairs if I were Scully. Oh, he, absolutely. That was weird that she didn't. I know that she said earlier that she didn't have a lot of information about and knowledge around arson, which makes sense. She's a medical doctor. So she could have had a moment of hesitation, but I do think she's smart enough to say, wait, the entire upstairs of this house is already on fire. <laughs> One more spark isn't going to change that. Yeah. That's all. All right. Is that how you survive? Shoot him on the staircase? Shoot him. Yep. Shoot him on the staircase. All right. 12 episodes down. We have now lasted as long as Tabitha, a spinoff of Bewitched, the little girl as an adult. Oh. The one who had to move her nose on her own. I know of Bewitched because I know that sound and the nose twitchy thing. I didn't realize there was a little girl in there. Yeah, they had a daughter. Oh. Who was immediately of speaking age after. You know what? I take it back. I don't know. I don't know if the daughter was there from the beginning or not. All right. <laughs> I guess that's it. <laughs> the Cast Files is produced by Kristen Riley and Dave Reed. Edited by Dave Reed. We have a tea public store. We have one thing there. It's pretty cool. Music by Hal Six. Logo by at Uka Art. That's O-O-K-A-A-R-T. You can email us at thecastfiles at gmail.com. That's the with two E's. You can find us on Twitter at castfiles. You can find me on Twitter at Dave Reed. That's D-A-I-V-E-R-E-E-D. 
I hope you are just having a wonderful day.